everyone, you're listening to Operation Dichotomy. I'm Paul, I'm your host, and we are the bridge between perception and reality. If you are unsure of what we're about, um, just to remind you, our goal is here, our goal here is to create a society of greater understanding and empathy, where people are slower to speak and more eager to listen, and at the end of the day, hear the other perspective before coming to any conclusion about whatever you might think. And we believe that even just that small shift in our perspective and the way they would interact with others will solve a lot of the problems that we see around us today. So if that sounds like something that you are interested in and you want to get behind, please go ahead and connect with us at operationdichotomy.com or you can follow us at Operation Dichotomy. And last but not least, if you have found any value in today's podcast or any of the other content that we share, please go ahead and, and share it with others. That's probably the easiest way to be a part of what we're doing. You don't really have to do that much work. Just take what we did and share it. So thank you. Now, um, on to our, our guest today. Uh, let me just go ahead and introduce her. Her name is Tiffany Yu. She is the founder and CEO of an organization called Diversability, which we'll get into in detail because it's going to be a very, very interesting topic. Uh, she's also the founder of the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, which we'll talk about as well. She is a speaker. She's been specifically on the TEDx stage, so you know she's a really good speaker. and has some interesting things to talk about. Um, she's an inclusion and empowerment advocate. She is a podcast ho- host at Tiffany and You. She is the member of the San Francisco Mayor's Disability Council. She has a voice and she's making an impact there as well. Tiffany, thank you so much for your time and thanks for being here with us today. Thanks for having me, Paul. That was a lot of, a lot of titles right there. It's all, it's all verbiage, but it really does give you a picture of who you are, I think. Yeah. Um, I think the important thing here is that you, you have a certain level of expertise, whether it's because you lived it, um, whether it's because you've taught about it and brought communities together uh, based on what we're about to talk about, which is disabilities. Um, I had to share all that because because you worked hard to earn those things. So that again, is true. That is yeah. true. I gotta own. I gotta own my brags. Definitely. If not, I'll own them for you. So <laughs> either way, it's coming. Um, for today, I, we, we say this all the time, but we talk to one guest, and we try to hone in on this one topic. But let us emphasize again: like this is not all of who she is. Right? It's a part of who Tiffany is, and it's part of her expertise. And that's why we're talking to her. Um, but for the sake of time, we're going to hone in on this. But there's so much more. But anyways, Tiffany, let's go ahead and get right into it because I know you have a lot to share. Um, we want to talk today about, quote unquote, disability or disabled people or the handicapped or dot, dot, dot. There's so many different ways to, I hesitate to say classify because we don't want to, to classify and to overgeneralize. Um, but this is the greater topic that we want to talk about. But if you could begin sharing with us a little bit about your story and how this has affected you, I think that'd be a great place to begin. Absolutely, thank you again for having me. But my, what I actually think is really interesting is I have lived much of my life in what I'm calling a disability narrative. And I think similar to your point, this is just one part of my entire narrative. And what I'm actually coming to learn more recently, and I'll share my origin story in a second, is that My story is actually a grief narrative and a grief journey and one of kind of exploring all of the nuances and identity embedded within that and having experienced grief. But my disability story starts when I was nine years old, so a little over 20 years ago. 
And my dad, who uh, my dad um, and I were dropping my mom off at the airport. And on the way home, he actually ended up losing control of the car. He ended up passing away, unfortunately, and I acquired a disability. So I the best way for me to explain it is that I paralyzed my right arm. So my injury is at, at the neck, and it's the formal term is called a brachial plexus injury. And I think what's really interesting is, and this is what's really interesting about disability stories, is that everyone has different ones. So to the extent that you can get to know as many people's disability origin stories as possible, you'll come to realize some people are born with them, some people acquire them as kids, some people acquire them much later in life, some people start acquiring them and they degenerate over time. And so to the extent, so, so, so that's my disability, my disability origin story. I remember in, I'm trying to paint a picture of this for people uh, because I bet 99% of the people don't know what that means. The brachial, um, sorry, I don't even remember what it was called. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a brachial plexus injury. So the brachial plexus is a series of nerves in the back of your neck that sends signals from your brain to your arm. So it's a type of paralysis. So instead of me being, you know, full quadriplegic, mm -hmm. I just have paralysis in my right arm. Okay. And I remember in your TEDx talk, um, you, you called it a quote unquote funny hand. Was that correct? Yes, I did call it a funny hand. Okay. So if you guys can imagine, I know we don't have video here. Um, I'm sure we've all met people with disabilities, whether it's, let's talk about physical for the purpose of this illustration. And you, I'll talk about myself, right? To avoid awkwardness, you either try to not look at the hand or whatever is quote unquote not normal. Um, or you're incredibly bold and you just like a child, like, Hey, what's wrong with your hand? Um, but I guess my point is we all have assumptions about, about disabilities, um, whether it's something that's deeply rooted within us or it's something that, um, we've heard from other people about. And I think the point of today's podcast is going to be really to clarify some of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Tiffany, when you said you were nine when the accident happened, um, and going back to your TED talk, you also mentioned this chronic exclusion that you've experienced through basically through the years from age nine to a certain point, I guess before you owned that identity about yourself. Um, what, was, what was that aspect like? What, was, what is chronic exclusion? How did that affect you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would compare it to the same way we, in, we internalize microaggressions. So chronic exclusion to me growing up was every single time I wasn't picked for the, the PE class, the gym class team. Mm -hmm. It was every single time I wasn't invited to a birthday party. It was knowing that even though I was on someone's team, they didn't really want me to be there in the first place. It was, you know, and I can go on and on and on about all of the ways that I felt excluded. But what I think is interesting about it is that I used my arm and the fact that I had a disability as the reason why. It was an easy scapegoat to say, oh, I'm not being invited to that person's birthday party because I'm disabled. Or I'm not being selected for this team because I'm disabled. 
I mean, it could be maybe I had a bad personality or maybe people didn't like me. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I think there was a turning point somewhere in my adulthood where I realized, you know what, I think it's time for me to number one, own my disability narrative, but also own that I have this one body and how am I just going to hug and embrace all parts of it rather than, you know, for me growing up, I wore long sleeves all the time because I just mm -hmm. wanted to hide my arm. And even now, or if you look at me now, so if you think about an, an arm becoming paralyzed when you're nine years old or a different part of your body becoming paralyzed, what ends up happening is it doesn't develop this, it doesn't develop, if your body is still growing, it doesn't develop the same way. So my arm is shorter than the other arm. There's a lot of muscle atrophy that's happened. The fingers have hyperextended. I mean, the hand looks different, right, as you mentioned. And so I just grew up with so much self-loathing and almost chronic exclusion of parts of my own body that then I looked for reinforcing and validating parts in my external world to support mm. that the fact that I, I, I hated my disability. The world hates the fact that I'm disabled. Let me just throw, let me just not acknowledge that part at all. So growing up, when you say chronic exclusion, is that something that you imposed upon yourself because of the way that you thought uh, about the rest of the world? Or did you find a lot of, um, just a lot of mean people and bullies? Because, you know, growing up in school, especially back in our day, I think we're similar age. Like bullies were a lot meaner back then than they were today, I think. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think what's interesting about that statement is people have often asked us, hey, are you willing to do work in schools because education is so important and, and you know, creating that sense of acknowledging differences at a young age is really important. And the way I think about that is even if I weren't disabled, I'm pretty sure that my classmates would have made fun of me for the fact that I'm Asian or that I'm petite. You know, kids... <laughs> and and sweeping generalization but mm. but there but there are mean kids right as a kid all we want to do is just fit in and mm. i think what's interesting is now as an adult i look for everything that makes me different and put that on a pedestal and shine <laughs> that light everywhere but but yeah i mean i i and i actually think bullies Bullies are potentially meaner now because of the way that you can virtually bully someone. The fact mm -hmm. that so much of that is anonymous. Mm. Actually, that's a good point. Yeah, bullies nowadays, they don't even have to stand up behind what they say, right? They can hide behind the keyboard. Um, I, I, I keep reminding myself, so it's, it's funny because, or maybe not that funny, but I feel like I, I, get, I get faced with some sort of criticism on a daily basis. And that's part of the, that's part of what happens when you become a leader or you become someone who's more visible is people will find things to critique. Mm -hmm. And one thing I remind myself of is this Brene Brown quote, which came from, you know, has roots from Teddy Roosevelt saying, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, who, 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 which criticism really matters? Is that person in the arena with you or are they in the you know, in the cheap seats and just throwing popcorn on you. Because if they're coming from the cheap seats, they're not the ones who are being visible, who are failing, who are experiencing hardship, overcoming adversity. They're just, you know, and so, um, so yeah. And, and it's interesting because even now, oftentimes I'll get younger, 
younger kids coming to me and asking me, what, what, do, what, what should we do about the bullies? Hmm. And it's hard because when you're young, you don't know whose opinion matters, right? Hmm. So now as an adult, I can say, I don't even know who that person is. Their username is user 568742. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this person just created this account to be a troll. But yeah. as a kid, it's much harder to decipher who, whose opinion does matter or whose doesn't. So growing up as a kid and, you know, and not only was it the fact that like I couldn't use my arm, it was no one else had had the experience of losing a parent at that age. There was no one that I could relate to to talk through what that experience was like. And it's only the reason why I talk about this being a grief narrative is it's only really now within the past couple of years that I'm acknowledging that there was grief in that story that needed to be confronted. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it sounds like it was a combination of your environment, bullies included, as well as the, the beliefs that were in your, we'll call them false beliefs, I guess, within yourself at that point that led to this collective um, exclusion for you. Uh, looking at you now and conversing with you, I think it's pretty obvious that you went from that exclusion state to a more confident leader figure, um, what was what was the transition? At what point were you able to go from having this narrative of being, uh, I guess, a victim narrative more than more than who you are now, or who someone who's leading organizations, putting together um, companies, and getting foundations and uh, funding together for awesome projects? Like how did how did that happen? That's a great question. I I think. I think the point that you brought up around what is the internal, what is your internal narrative saying versus what is your external environment saying is really important because again, as a nine-year-old, I was very malleable to whatever my external environment was telling me. And, and part of the reason why I started Diversibility is because I realized that no one taught me how to talk about my story in a way that didn't frame me as the victim in it. Right, because my external narrative was saying, Oh my God, what happened to you is so sad. I hope you get better soon. While when you become paralyzed, that that under a certain definition is a permanent is a permanent disability. And so it, it was only until I created diversibility or diversibility 1.0, I'll call it, in 2009, where I first started realizing that I could change how I talked about my story. And I've I have talked about this a little bit, but the creation of diversibility really paralleled my own healing journey. So up until 2009, so from 1997 to 2009, I actually never publicly talked about the car accident. And a lot of this is rooted in potentially Asian cultural influence around not acknowledging death or not acknowledging trauma or, or mental health just or or disability just sweeping that away because mm. all of that within this asian cultural context caused some form of shame so i was just taught so after the car accident i was just taught that that was a singular event and to move and to move on with my life and get over it and i'm putting air quotes air quotes on our conversation now and so when i created diversibility it was the first time i stepped out into the world and i said here is something that happened to me and I am validating the fact that this story is real. And once I put that into the world, and, and a lot of the inspiration for my work does come from Brene Brown, who is this mm -hmm. expert on shame, resilience, and vulnerability and courage. And one of the things that she says is the power of emotional expression or emotional writing and what 
being able to express yourself or put something down on paper or put it, put it into the world allows you to explore all these other parts of your story. So for me, I remember the first couple of times I ever shared that story, which ultimately culminated on this TEDx stage that you saw this talk of. I cried because there are very hard parts of that story. The things that I the things that I felt like I experienced, I would never want my kids to experience that. I would never want any other child to experience that, to experience both the, the trauma of the car accident, but also not having the support system in place afterward to really heal and work through what ended up happening. So, so yeah, that shift, I think that shift for me came from number one, creating diversibility and, and sharing my own story but also seeing how sharing my story and sharing that level, level of vulnerability gave permission for other people to do the same. Mm -hmm. And it also came from meeting a lot of other disability advocates and seeing the ways that they presented themselves in the world around how much they loved their bodies or were embracing their stories, again, also gave me permission to do that for myself. So, okay. This is something kind of interesting to me where diver diversity evolved as your story evolved. Um, so when it first started, all right, let's, let's fast forward a little bit. So right now, what would you say is the mission statement and the main purpose of diversity for, um, for whoever it's for? Like what is the mission statement? Sure. So diversity, the way I would explain it is diversity is a community that's focused on the celebration of our diverse disability lived experiences. So what we want to do is through the power of storytelling, the power of events, we want to showcase how diverse this community is. So to your point about victim narratives, to say that disabled people can only sit in narratives that where they're the victim or where there's shame or where there's pity, is one of the many ways that our community is dehumanized. So there are people, there are disabled people who do feel like they're a victim or who do feel ashamed of their disability or who or who or who wants or who want some sort of pity. That's fine. But there are also disabled people who are so proud, who love their disability identity, who go off, want to show it off, want everyone to see how how enriched their lives are because of their disability identity. That is how we humanize the disability experience. It almost seems like there's this one side where there's people that are super proud of their disability, um, which is amazing. And then I've also seen people, um, so I'm talking about my mom, uh, I mentioned before, so she's had polio for 60 years. Yeah, she's she's getting up there. <laughs> Hopefully she's not listening to this. Um, but like, I wouldn't say she is proud of it per se. But what, what I'm most inspired by watching her is that she minimizes it in a sense where it's such a small part of her identity as a whole, that this quote unquote disability is just like we said before, it's a small part of who she is. She's neither victim to it, nor is it something that she's super proud of. It's just a small part of being this woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, um, is, is that a big portion of the, the disabled community as well? Where I know we talked about two different spectrums, right? Where the people are super proud and that's amazing. And then there's people who are uh, more of the quote unquote pity me side, which is understandable as well. 
Um, is there a lot of that middle ground where it's just like, well, it's just a part of who I am. Let's kill life together anyways and move forward. Of, of course. I mean, to, to be human means you're happy, you're sad, and everything in between, right? And you have people who mm -hmm. are elated all the time, and you have people who unfortunately kind of sit in places of being very depressed all the time, right? And most of us sure. as humans kind of sit in that middle part. I mean, I think, I think where I personally spend most of my time, and I will say I do feel like I sit in a little bit of a bubble. Number one, the disability rights movement was started in the SF Bay area. So there mm -hmm. are a lot of proud disabled people here. But I, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know if I, I have the authority to say where most people are sitting, but I think mm -hmm. that we oscillate on this spectrum. So I'm not proud mm -hmm. all the time. And I actually do notice sometimes where I am framing things that happen to me in terms of being a victim. And I do catch myself sometimes making weird excuses because I can't use one of my arms when the, the, the thing that's happening has nothing to do with whether or not I can use my arm, right? So, so those things, you know, I, I talk about this in terms of grief. I talk about this in terms of trauma. Similar disability is like how we feel about, about all those things just comes in waves. So mm -hmm. I'm not proud all the time. There are some times where it's really hard. I mean, right now I'm dating and some people I date will tell me that they feel kind of uncomfortable with my disability story. And that's, that's totally fine with them, right? Everyone has preferences. And so how can, I, how can I find a partner who is willing to embrace that and all sides of who, who I'm bringing to the table? Okay. So it's like anything else where it's rare if, if it even exists where one person is always one or the other, You're just kind of oscillating back and forth. But people tend to be more... Uh, not on one side or the other, but I guess they spend most of their time in a particular area, which is what it sounds like. I'm getting, okay. So, sorry, to go back to my question, I need to hear that vision statement because I'm wondering when you first started DiverseAbility, if right now you had this awesome vision of empowering people, bringing them together, creating community, but this is from um, the new you, let's call it, right? The evolved version of Tiffany. What was the mission of diversity, diversity back in 08, 09 when you first yeah. began? So this is another story that, that I sometimes will tell a lot. But when we first started Diversibility in 2009, our goal was to start a movement around disability pride. Hmm. And what I think is interesting is at the time, I was still in college and we were applying for a grant. And when I went to the grant committee, when I went to interview with the grant committee, they questioned me about this term disability pride because they couldn't understand how someone could be proud of being disabled. Hmm. And I'm looking at our facial expression now, now in 2020, disability pride. So disability pride is actually a phrase that has its roots in the 1990s. What it actually means, disability pride, the definition of it is how someone asserts their self-worth and exhibits pride around their disability identity. Um, but in, yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, in 2009, in 1.0 Diversibility, our goal was we just want to host events for people to come, for disabled and non-disabled people to come together to talk about the disability, our disability lived experiences. Mm. I mean, very similar. I mean, it's been, it's been very similar. I think that where I have noticed the most monumental change is in myself. 
and how I view my disability. So interestingly enough, back in 2009, all of those statements that I was making were very aspirational. And mm. I don't think that, I mean, I was applying for a grant, so I had this grand vision, of course, but I don't know if I was there yet. And over time, I think just seeing both how, how much of the disability community has been supportive of our work, but then also seeing how curious non-disabled people are to be a part of this conversation and want to understand, like you and I connecting right now, mm -hmm. has really, yeah, has really allowed me to grow into this identity. That's awesome. So over, what is it, 2020, so over the last 11, 12 years, you must have seen countless people who have been empowered by diversability. Um, and for those of us who are listening who are like, oh, what's diversability? Just think about the words that are put into that title, right? Diverse, diversity, and ability. Um, actually, I'm not going to explain that, Tiffany. Can you explain that for everyone? Where does sure. diversability and the idea come from? So the, the origins of diversability actually came from wanting to acknowledge that disability is an aspect of, of diversity. So the same way where you think about our identities, how can we make sure that disability is a part of that identity? The second part was really showcasing that disability is diverse. And so, so to be honest, that's actually where diversability came from. And interestingly enough, I mean, you and I talked about language and, mm -hmm. um, and diversability as an organization was never meant to set out to change the word disability. In fact, we have a lot of pride over the word disability. We have a lot of pride over our ability to reclaim that word and what it means, right? Because the actual definition, dis plus ability, you can create your own inferences for what you think that means. But that's a lot of non-disabled people inferring what they think disability means onto the disability community. And so I think it's, I mean, there's a hashtag that went viral a couple of months ago called when I call myself disabled. And it was a lot of firsthand disability narratives around people of all different types of disabilities talking about, this is what that word means to me. It doesn't mean less than, it doesn't mean I, you know, it doesn't mean pity. It means this is me seeing myself. And I'm not sure this is the right place to go into it, but in terms of like what word to use. So mm -hmm. I want to talk about euphemisms. Mm -hmm. Diversability is not a euphemism. Some people will, will use it as one. That is not what we're promoting. Euphemism is, a, is when you try and use a word other than disability. So you may say differently abled. You may say handicapable. <laughs> um, other words like that. And um, really... The words that we should be using are disability or disabled person. Okay. There's no should actually. The most PC, the most PC one is to is to say people with disabilities or disabled people. And I I think that we have grown up in a society where we have used differently able or handicapable or these other words to make disabled people seem more abled. When in reality, disabled people are abled. Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that, but <laughs> I, I, think, I think what I'm trying to say is that 
when we don't use the word disability or, or disabled person, we're actually giving those words more power to have negative, negative stigma attached to them. Got it. I think you said something very interesting a little bit earlier where going back to this word disabled, there, the, you said the people that aren't disabled infer the meaning that they have into that word. And so when the disabled people look at the word disabled and the meaning is a little bit different. So the hashtag you said was when I call myself disabled. Mm -hmm. um, so from my perspective, because I am not disabled, I guess I fall into that category of non-disabled person inferring my own meaning. Uh, so I know what, let's call it the quote unquote majority of the population thinks of when we think of the word disabled. But what what is the the disabled person's perspective of the word disabled. I think that's incredible for me to know and for everybody else to know. Yeah, so defers is different based on the person, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. So so what I the best way for me to explain this is the de the degrees to the disability identity. So the first degree is me coming to you and saying that I'm a disabled person. And my hope is that by saying, hey, I'm a disabled person, it's the same way that I can tell you that I'm Asian and I'm a woman and I'm in my 30s. It's just an aspect of my identity. Okay. The, second, the second degree is to say I'm a person with a disability. So I'm a person first. I happen to, have a dis I happen to be with, with this disability. That may be the bucket that your mom fits in, which is I, I do have polio, but it's, it just happens to be one part of all these different identities that I have but I'm not going around telling people like I'm disabled. And then the third is by saying like, I'm a person who has a disability. So you're furthering yourself from the disability identity. And in the has a disability, it kind of becomes like a medical term. So for me, when I call myself disabled, it really is just ownership of my identity and my narrative. But other people, you know, there are disabled people within the disability community who would call themselves disabled, maybe to get access to certain types of health benefits. Mm. So, so yeah, I think the context really matters and is super different. And this is why, and this is how you open the podcast, right? I'm just one person's perspective right. and every person, and we actually had this conversation at the San Francisco Marriage Disability Council around language because we are representing this, this body um, we sit in City Hall, and we decided, or it was suggested to us that we use the term people with disabilities whenever we're referring to the disability community. And I actually spoke up and I said, well, I actually prefer to identify myself as a disabled person because I am proud of my disability identity. And they said, well, that's totally fine, Tiffany, but when we talk about the community, let's use the term that is politically correct, which is people with disabilities. Oh man, this language thing, not just with disabilities, but with anything, the whole idea of being politically correct and the meaning behind languages and words. And it is, and, and I think there is a part, you know, it's, it's really thinking through call out versus call in culture. So for example, when you open this podcast, you said, you know, there are all these different terms. And when we grew up, Handicapped was a word that was okay, right? There are handicapped placards, there are handicapped bathrooms, 
in today's day and when most people are like developing things, we actually don't really use the word handicapped anymore because handicapped has its roots in disabled people having their hand out with a cap asking for money. And so I actually don't use that word anymore. And it's what's interesting is sometimes in the beginning, when I would hear that word, I would go off on this whole tangent around how that's really offensive toward the disability community. And it made me realize that by calling it out in that way, that wasn't, that wasn't the start of a productive conversation. No one wants to be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And no one, and when you don't even know what the right words are to use, you don't even want to engage in the conversation because you know that maybe you could be called out. Mm-hmm. So um, I have actually taken to, if someone you know, sends me an email saying, you know, can you recommend a couple differently abled people for this event? And I'll send them the recommendations and then I'll say, P.S. Uh, we don't really use that word anymore. Here's a link to some journalism guidelines that explain a little bit more about why we don't use the term differently abled anymore. And, and my hope is that by doing it that way, I'm still, it's more of like a call in to say, hey, like, by the way, rather than, oh my God, I can't believe you just used that and, and totally derail the whole conversation. And Brene, yeah. talk, Brene Brown talks about this a lot too, in terms of like the inclusive language movement, right? Uh-huh. Or that's what she calls it. And like, we shouldn't use language as a way to shame people or as a way to make them feel embarrassed or wrong, right? And interestingly enough, when Diversibility 1.0 started, I used to talk to people and say, we're going to throw PC out the door because I just want you to show up with whatever questions you have. Because the only way we can move forward is if you're not afraid to ask the questions that you're really curious about. Ooh, you said so much good stuff right there. Um, oh, man, the inclusive language call-in culture. I want to repeat that because that's something that we want to advocate for so much within Operation Dichotomy. Um, outside of this conversation of disabilities and disabled people, it's it's so easy to hate on somebody for being quote-unquote ignorant. Um, it's one thing if they're ignorant because they choose to continue to be ignorant, even though someone teaches them what's right and wrong. Again, quote-unquote right and wrong. But it's another thing I feel like when you just pick the wrong words because you don't know. And mm-hmm. there's no malcontent behind it. It's just, I literally don't know. This is this is what I've heard growing up. So this is what I'm repeating. Unless somebody teaches me the right thing, like you did with the journal links, et cetera, then I'm never going to learn. Um, and so our, our thing here is that we want people to be able to teach each other how to, how to listen and to understand things appropriately without coming to false assumptions and basically just wrong conclusions. But we can't do that if we're calling them out on every single wrong thing and making them feel stupid about it because then they're not going to hear us anyways. Mm-hmm. And so for everybody listening, go back to what Tiffany just said about the call out versus call in culture, because that's incredibly, incredibly important in you building your community around you that's still diverse and carries different opinions because otherwise you're not going to be able to have a conversation without somebody going off and getting mad about every single little thing. Okay. Off of my I, I love that. I mean, and I guess what I will also say is part of the reason why our community is both disabled, consists of both disabled and non-disabled people, is the fact that I do want to continue to bring 
non-disabled people into the room and sit at our tables and, and hear the conversations that we're having so that you can go out and be our allies. Like one thing that I have learned throughout this entire process and my own disability narrative is the power of interdependence. I can't, you know, as much as I want to go around and be like, I can look at everything I can do by myself. There's some things I like legitimately cannot do by myself. And so how can we, how can we use the power of what you're talking about, compassion of the listening ear of curiosity to bring in allies, people who don't share our identities into our conversations. And really, you know, because, because Paul, you have access to rooms that I don't have access to. And my hope is that by you and I having this conversation and whoever is listening, next time they're in a room, maybe they're like, hey, did we think about turning on captions for our next Zoom conference call, for our next Zoom meeting, in case people who are deaf or hard of hearing want to join? Or, oh, by the way, we're hosting this event. Did we think about whether or not it was wheelchair accessible? I mean, one of the things that for me made me feel like a real burden growing up was every single time I felt like I had, had to ask for permission to show up anywhere. No one wants to has, have to ask for permission, right? right. And so um, there's a level, it's um, Mia Mingus, who is this incredible disability justice activist, coined this term access intimacy which to me, I, I broadly define as how can we show up at a place and just know that our access needs were met? Mm. We didn't even have to ask for permission. <laughs> we just, mm. it was either all there on the page or provided for us. So, so yeah, so I'm hoping for our allies or, or even if you are disabled and you are in certain spaces, like it's okay to speak up and say, hey, have we thought about opening, have we thought about, you know, catering whatever program or whatever we're doing to people who have this type of disability. Hmm. Because yeah, you I know, to... oh, no, go ahead. what I was going to say is like, you know that I'm going to storm into the room and talk about disability and access, right? Yeah. Like that is my niche. That's why we're having this conversation. I actually think sometimes it might be more powerful and, and you, and you are a powerful ally. You do have the lived experience of being the child of someone who has a disability. Right. And mm -hmm. so you do have that lens. And I look at companies like Microsoft where Satya Nadella, one of his children has a, has a disability and he's mm -hmm. incorporated that into his organization. I'm just like, how can we get, yeah. How can we get more, more leaders like that? And Satya, I'm not on a first name basis with him, but, <laughs> but he has access to rooms that so many of us don't. And he has a level of visibility that a lot of us don't. So, and, and he's an incredible ally as well. So I, I just really, really acknowledge this is not about creating boundaries between us and them. It's really all of us in this together. Mm -hmm. Man, we could end it right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, I could ask you hundreds of more questions probably, and I'm sure the audience would listen, um, but, but I won't for your sake and for the audience's sake as well. But um, I do want to provide to them basically your, where can they find you, Tiffany? You have so much value to provide. And I feel like anybody who has gained anything from this conversation today will want to learn more and they might be interested in diving deeper into whatever you're doing. We didn't even get to talk about the Austin Foundation Disability Chapter, which I really wanted to actually go ahead. Can you share that real quick? Because it's so <laughs> cool. Sure. So um, about three years ago, I started actually three years ago to this month, we launched April 1st 
2017, we launched something called the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter, which is a small giving circle consisting of about 10 of us with disabilities who award $1,000 monthly to a disability project. And to date, we've awarded, I want to say, almost $38,000 to 38 projects. And all of the money from our grants comes from within the disability community. All of our trustees identify as having a disability. And so we've really, what we're trying to do is really flip the, the script on philanthropy to say mm -hmm. disabled people are not only the beneficiaries or the recipients of charity, but we can also be the grant makers, the funders, the decision makers. Mm -hmm. So that definitely flipped the script for me. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody listening to this really flipped the script for you too, um, which is why I wanted you to share that. But all that kind of stuff and more, Tiffany, where can they find you? Sure. So I, I will just put a big plug here to say, you know, one of, one of the very small ways that you can be an ally, similar to how Paul opened this conversation by saying, just by sharing this podcast, we've already done all the work for you, you just need to share, is by following our social channels, because then you'll start to see disability content show up on your feed. So you can actually find diversity across all social media platforms at diversity. that's D-I-V-E-R-S-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. And then if you want to follow me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm Tiffany Yu, that's the letter I, the letter M, followed by Tiffany Yu, that's my first and last name. And my content is a little bit different than what you'll see on Diversability. Diversability's content is really about elevating disability visibility. It's all about our community showing up in community together, showcasing members of our community and what their daily lives are like. Tiffany's personal social channels are really kind of the behind the scenes, what it's like to grow up with childhood trauma, what it's like to work through my own grief journey, what it's like to live with a disability. Hmm. And Tiffany spelled T-I-F-F-A-N-Y, last name is Y-U, correct? Yes. Okay, uh, we'll have that linked in the podcast notes as well for those of us that have trouble spelling, like myself. Um, I think you had a website as well. Would you mind sharing that too? Sure. The, the, <laughs> there's not that much to see on the website, though, but the website is just my first and last name, TiffanyU.com. Nice. Nice and simple. So you guys know where to connect with Tiffany. Um, I suggest you go ahead and do so. I believe I'm following. I know I'm following you. I'm pretty sure I'm following Diversibility as well. Um, if not, I definitely will be in order to expose myself to different kinds of content, because that's really the way that we expand our perspectives, right? Mm. Okay, now this is the last question, and I'm so glad that you are the one that I get to ask it to. Uh, just based on the way this conversation went, I feel like you have a lot to share and a lot of insight to bring. Um, but I mentioned earlier that part of what we're trying to do is bring, bring unity in our often divided society, uh, which is really divided because we refuse to listen. And we we want to talk a lot, we want to share our perspective, but it's so much harder and so much more work to get into the other person's perspective. So on a pragmatic level, Tiffany, from your perspective and what you've seen in terms of building community, um, specifically within the disabled community, but also outside of it, um, what, are some, what are some things that people like myself can take away from this conversation and just implement on the day-to-day -to, -day to create a diverse community within our own little communities, whether it's our families or our friend groups or even coworkers, even though everybody's in quarantine right now? That's a great question. I'm not sure I have a 
great answer, but I guess what I will say is I'll, I'll do the light note and then I'll do like what I would normally say. So the, the lighter okay. note is I recently just joined TikTok. And what I think is really interesting about that social media platform is the fact that you just don't know who is seeing your content. It's not really catered to your followers. They, it's curated in a very, in a way that I'm, I, I'm not familiar with. And what ends up happening is I ended up posting something on there. And when I posted the same video on Instagram, it was, it was around some of the, the hate crimes against Asians that are happening right now during this COVID-19 pandemic. When I shared it on Instagram, you know, all the reactions and all the comments I got in it were like, I'm with you, like in solidarity. And then when I shared it on TikTok, I, I got to see a perspective that I was a little bit shocked by, to be honest, in terms of, um, amount of trolls. I mean, I, I don't know if I would call them trolling comments. It's, it's a very large amount of, uh, of people who really believe that China, China is to blame for this whole thing. Um, so what I have learned from that though, is that I do, I do kind of live in a bubble. I live in San Francisco. I live in one of the most progressive cities in this country. And you and I are having this conversation, which now I'm wondering how many people are having conversations with disabled people? Hmm. Probably, well, I already knew probably not that many. But, um, but yeah, I guess I would say, and then the, so, so yeah, that really took me out of my bubble to say, if I really want to see what people think, go on to TikTok because there's really no filtering for who is going to show up there and who's going to comment. Um, and with something, you know, as charged as the situation that we're in and as stressful as it is for everyone, you know, my heart goes out to everyone who has been affected, um, both by the actual public health threat and by the perceived racial threat, unfortunately, that's been created. Um, but, but yeah, so TikTok kind of took me out of my bubble. What I would tell people to do is to show up in spaces that, you're, that you would feel uncomfortable showing up in, like be an ally to other communities. And you know, when you first, like I knew that this question was coming because you and I chatted about this and you said you were gonna ask me this question. And what it really made me think about was the fact that we talk so much about intersectionality so intersectionality is when you hold multiple oppressed identities. So for me, I'm a person of color, I'm a woman, I'm disabled, like that is, those are, that's me at the intersections. And I talk a lot about intersectionality in our work, like the fact that I need to acknowledge that, you know, and you asked me about the bullying as a kid, right? I don't know if it was because I was disabled. It could have been due to these other these other parts of my identity as well, right? Mm. And I'm not quite sure, and if anyone who is listening to this knows, I'm, I, I still haven't quite figured out to how we can be more intersectional in all of our movements. So that is to say, like, Paul, you and I are both Asian. How can we get more Asian disabled people at our gatherings, at our convenings, part of these, you know, communities that we're both part of? Um, 
within the disability space, you know, some of the things I think about are how can we get how can we get more black indigenous people of color, queer people, queer disabled people showing up? Um, and, and, they, and those groups have started to come together. There's a disability justice movement that is, that is, that is entirely, that consists entirely of people of color and they do tons of programs and stuff like that. So, um, so I acknowledge, yeah, I want to acknowledge that there's more work, there's more work to do in terms of really being at the intersections. And that's why I think this podcast is so interesting because, you know, the reason why you and I connected, Paul, is because you saw something that I posted in an Asian group that we're both part of. So we connected mm -hmm. through that identity to then have this conversation about a disability identity that one of us has and the other doesn't, mm -hmm. right? And so potentially, I guess what I would challenge your listeners to do is you know, how can we find those points of connection when we meet someone who seemingly or on the surface is very different, there mm -hmm. is something that will connect them, you know, and how can we find mm -hmm. that thread? But, but yeah, I feel like I've included a couple different tidbits in here. I do think following just, you know, and, and it has been, it's been on my mind for, so there was a period of time where I was like, I really want to be more engaged within the Asian community. I know I've spent so much time in the disability community. So I went onto Instagram and I followed a lot of different Asian influencers. Then I was like, you know what? I've lived in San Francisco for almost four years. I feel like I, I don't, I, and I live, you know, in downtown San Francisco. I want to see more content that's focused on the beauty of this city so that I can look at my own city and see how beautiful it is. So I started following a lot of people who are like San Francisco influencers. And so now that my feed is all of these new people, like I'm reminded every single time I see that content, like, oh, I, maybe I should check in on my friend and the initiative and Asian Hustle Network and then, you know, the initiative that he's running. Or maybe I should check out this Facebook group that I haven't in a long time and see what the latest conversations are. So hopefully by following Diversibility or following other disability advocates, every single time that shows up on your feed, you can be like, oh, you know, I haven't really like thought about this before. Um, maybe I'll, 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 maybe like, let me click on this article and read more about this topic so that I am informed and can, I really believe in the pay it forward effect. Like then I can pass that information along to someone else. Hmm. Well, you said a lot of really good stuff there. I know. I, I said, I said a no, lot. <laughs> no, but I think we could boil it down to the two words you said, get uncomfortable, right? Put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Um, but I think Tiffany also gave us an, an easy way of getting uncomfortable. Um, although that sounds kind of wrong. <laughs> but follow people on Instagram or on social that are involved in communities, or let's say they're advocates of communities that make you uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable being around disabled people, just follow them from afar and absorb their content. That way you don't have to get as uncomfortable by walking into, I don't know, a diversity meeting or um, something that we actually have to be there in person. You can be connected and learn remotely and you can still learn. It's not as, not as great as being in person and talking and having a conversation with the actual person, but it's a way to stick your foot in the door and, and just learn, right? Learn from afar and then get closer and closer. Start easy, then get less and less comfortable. Um, and hopefully by doing these things, we'll become better people, more informed and uh, I don't know if educated is the, the term to use here, but 
um, yeah, just have our perspective expanded and then we can create that kind of community wherever we are. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think the one thing I'll add is that I do think it is important to take some time to really think about what is it about that, what is it that makes me feel uncomfortable? So one of the things that I think is interesting is I oftentimes will talk about privilege. Mm-hmm. And I'll notice people, you know, shifting in their seats or, and, and I will acknowledge that I am extremely privileged, even though I have these identities, which from a textbook definition can be seen as more, more marginalized than others. And when we feel uncomfortable, like, so for example, it's like, what is it that makes you uncomfortable being around a disabled person? Is it that you're afraid that maybe that could be you one day? Is it that you don't know what the, um, what the extent of their abilities are? Is it that you have all these burning questions but don't know how to ask them? And what I actually think is really powerful or what will set the foundation for a really great conversation is respect. And so... I, I don't want to like dole out advice to like go show up in these like places that make you uncomfortable, like, and then just look for all the reinforcements of like why you're so uncomfortable in that space. But instead, you know, maybe talk to the person who's sitting next to you at that event, ask them what, what brought them here. And really, yeah, I think really like dig into that discomfort. And then the only way we can have a productive conversation and change hearts and minds is if we start at a place of respect. So um, you know, you and I started, or we tapped into this whole thing about language about halfway through this conversation, but that's because you and I had already built rapport. Like if that was the first thing I said, I said to you at the beginning of the podcast, right when you said it, it may have been a very different conversation. So that, that's, I, I think what I'm learning for myself as a disability advocate is that I can't just like go out and be like, let's talk about disability today. Um, and, and instead like let that person find their own journey to my table and then we can have a conversation. Beautiful. That's awesome. All right, everyone. Um, go back and listen to all of that. I may or may not write an outline with all these points because it's so helpful to make a course on it. Um, but again, Tiffany, we just want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing your expertise, your experience your wisdom, uh, not just with the disabled community, but with society at large. Um, Thank you for your time. Again, thank you for being with us. For everyone else, until next time.